You're listening to The Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I'm your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to cover a little topic here that might be just a little bit controversial here, and uh, some of the things we're going to read tonight might be a little bit offensive to some groups of people, but this is a very important uh, thing to discuss here tonight, because we're going to look back at the, the playbook of medical psyops here and uh, specifically we're going to look into a little hot topic of the 1980s the AIDS epidemic and we're going to uh, review some of the topical information from that time and we'll compare it to things going on today and you'll see that this is always 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 the same old playbooks and the same old concepts being rehashed over and over again uh, by these different uh, people in positions of power here uh, so we'll see. Tonight we'll discuss COVID-19, AIDS, and medical psyops, the same old playbook. And we'll uh, lay it out for you here. And uh, like I said, I put that little disclaimer up front for anybody out there. Uh, you might find some of the things that are discussed in what we're going to read here maybe a little bit offensive. And some of the information is a little bit dated because tonight we'll be reading from Chapter 6 of a little book entitled Murder by Injection. The Story of the Medical Conspiracy Against America by Eustace Mullins. And this is copyright 1988. And here's the thing. If you know any about any of uh, Eustace Mullins' work, um, you would know that uh, he's a very well-researched author, and he does have uh, some very opinionated views on things. Uh, so that being the case, uh, we could see uh, the perspective we'll be looking at this from, from the perspective of Mr. Mullins, who has passed away now several years ago. Uh, but anyway, that does not diminish the uh, importance of the research and the information he put out. Uh, so we're going to, like I said, read directly from Chapter 6 of his book. And uh, this will review many of the things that were going on in the 1980s and how the medical field was approaching the then epidemic of AIDS. And uh, we'll go ahead and we'll just get into the reading here tonight. And we'll see. This is important because we will relate it to things going on today. And I don't think we have to draw the lines too far for you to pick up what's being put down here. So uh, let's just get right into it. The most talked about medical phenomena of the 1980s is AIDS, the Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. The name is of some interest. First of all, it is said to be acquired, presuming some action on the part of the victim in coming down with this disease. Second, it results in or is characterized by an immune deficiency, meaning that the human system loses the ability to fight against and overcome these inimicable presences. The result in that the system becomes prey to a variety of infections, some of which will be fatal. The prevalence of these infections occurs through two dominant illnesses, Kaposi's sarcoma, evidenced by large sores on the skin, and a form of pneumonia. It is noteworthy that pneumonia, which had been a fatal disease, had largely been conquered. It had been called the old man's friend because it took off many elderly persons who presumably no longer had a desire to live. The class of infections which 
have become widespread through what is called AIDS were first recognized by physicians, veterinarians, and biologists about 50 years ago. Going to pause there, folks. And he's the the date of this book was 1988 was the copyright date. So he's talking about going back to the 1930s here when he's talking about 50 years ago. Uh, but not to belabor that point, let's move on. At that time, many sheep in Ireland were afflicted by a killer epidemic called Maidi Visma. Biologists determined that Maidi Visma was caused by a new class of viruses. Because of the time they required to become virulent, these viruses were called slow viruses. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Pay attention closely because uh, there's going to be some important terms and stuff that will come about in the reading here. Uh, slow viruses being among them here. The advent of these slow viruses presages a new era in the medical history of mankind. Human beings prior to this time have not been affected by slow viruses, although they had been found among animals being transmissible among monkeys and apes. Slow viruses are also a type known as retroviruses. Going to pause there. Have you heard of retroviruses, folks? This is what he's talking about here. That's what a slow virus is, and they identified these back in the 1930s, apparently. So uh, let's pay attention and see what else is being said here. When they enter an infected cell, they assimilate into the genetic structure of the cell, apparently during the cell process of mitosis, or cell division, such division being a normal process of healthy growth. Mitosis is one of the two alternatives which face every cell in the human body. Either it divides and grows through mitosis as a life process, or it submits to viral replication and resultant cell death as part of a disease process. Thus, we find at the crux of the AIDS problem the ultimate question of the life or death of the entire organism. This is why AIDS, once it reaches the virulent stage, is said to be incurable, resulting in the death of the host body. In a healthy body, some 10 million cells are dying every second. At this same second, they are usually replaced by the body process. Such immediate replacement cannot be orchestrated by the usual body processes of genetic information theories, chromosomes, enzymes, or nerve impulse signals. The instantaneous nature of the process requires that it be commanded by bioradiation phenomena. These are triggered by coherent ultra-weak photon emissions from living tissue of varying wavelengths. These photon emissions, according to their wavelengths, control biological functions which are in constant activity, such as photorepair, photoaxism, photoperiodic clocks, mitosis, and multiphoton events. Ultra-weak photon emissions from living cells exhibit a spectral distribution from infrared, 900 nanometers, to ultraviolet, 200 nanometers. This photon intensity correlates with the conformational studies of DNA, or sorry, conformational states of DNA, during which activity the spectral intensities of biophotons amount to magnitudes of some 10 to 40 magnitude times higher than those of thermal equilibrium at physiological temperatures. The biomolecule with the highest information density, DNA, seems to be the source of biophoton regularity radiation functioning as an exciplex laser and com comparing favorably with the fields of man-made lasers. And I'm going to pause there, folks. And what Mr. Mullins is referring to here, he's talking about... Uh, 
cellular processes functioning in a way that are not consistent with the way uh, your standard medical education teaches here. This is talking about energetic states, see, and talking about something called, uh, uh, what did he re refer to it here, bioradiation phenomena, or uh, what, what's, this is also known as, uh, what's the other term, uh, like quantum photonics or something like that, or biophotonics, some sort of uh, science like this that uh, many uh, scientists have been studying, but it's very poorly understood, and it's misdescribed in my view. So what he's describing here is being misdescribed as they try very much to equate it to uh, this whole um, atomic-type uh, phenomenon. Okay, they, they try to uh, term it in the, the particular form, the, the form of uh, the particle theory, like everything is a, a subatomic particle or something like that. So describing these photons, these bio photons uh, being emitted from cell to cell, uh, it's not an incorrect statement, but at the same token, I think it's misdescribed because they try to conform it to these quantum type ideas and, and this kind of thing, which I think is faulty at the base of it, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but anyway, just so you understand what he's talking about, and that's something uh, people could look up. Uh, so, you know, it, it's something that was understood by many practitioners in the scientific field at some point. But it kind of got uh, brushed aside as a type of pseudoscience in the modern medical system. But uh, anyway, it talks about cells functioning in a way that doesn't line up with standard medical theory right now. But that's what he's referring to there. And this was being looked at in the 1980s, okay? Uh, just keep that in mind. These were some of the things that were being looked at in the 1980s. And this uh, realm of thought kind of got brushed under the rug at that point. But let's get back to the reading. Thus, the problem of AIDS brings us to the most basic properties of cell function. The ability of the living cell to respond to microwaves without discernible variation in temperature apparently indicates a non-thermal mechanism like an activated crystal. Thus, AIDS may help us in understanding the tuning mechanism of cells, which indicate its state of health or disease, and thus improve our understanding of all diseases affecting the organism. A wide-ranging study of living cells, from primitive bacteria to those of man, shows that these cells produce natural alternating current fields, which, in frequency ranges lower than 100 MHz, show maximal electrical oscillation at or near mitosis. Here again, tuned systems are triggering biological actions in a manner which is not yet fully understood. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. Do you hear how he's describing this? He's describing this in terms of frequency and vibration and how the cells operate in much the same type of a mechanism like an activated crystal. So, uh, you know, he's talking about microwaves and different frequency events. So he's describing the function of biology here, functioning in a different way than what is presented in the medical literature of today. Okay, and this is something we need to keep in mind because there were people that were seriously researching these ideas back in the 1980s, and uh, much of that research has really disappeared off the face of the earth, at least in the public domain anyway. So I think that the whole fascination with AIDS 
and the AIDS epidemic and all all the the hype and the study and all the monies that went to it. Uh, in my view, I think these monies were going towards studying something more, uh, something along these lines. This could be a very important connection to folks. But anyway, let's get back to the reading. I don't want to belabor that point too long, but think of it like that. Okay, that uh, these, you know, th that maybe disease states and health in the human body function in a much different way than we're being presented. And it has more to do with frequency and uh, these kind of things. Okay. So let's, let's continue on with the reading, though. Thus, the death of Rock Hudson, one of Hollywood's most promiscuous homosexual psychopaths, may lead to the fortunate result of inspiring new breakthroughs in our understanding of the most basic cell functions. Unfortunately, the cancer profiteers and medical monopoly insist on treating AIDS as a malfunction of the cell itself, which, of course, calls for the magic bullet, the chemotherapy, which will be provided at a price by the drug trust. In fact, chemotherapy attacks the immune system, thus increasing the fatality of the disease. The establishment approach is to attack the virus, not to aid the system in overcoming it, thus not only bypassing the immune system, which is already under attack from the, this disease, but actually aiding in its conquest. And I'm going to pause there again, folks. See, that's an important idea we need to keep in mind there, too. Uh, Mr. Uh, Mullins here is... Uh, Addressing the fact that uh, those in the medical cartel, so to say, uh, will approach this in the way they always approach these things. Well, they need to kill this virus. See, so they will attack the virus. And in so doing, uh, you know, with this chemotherapy, as he's saying, uh, which they did. And one of the large purveyors of this chemotherapy back in the 1980s was one Mr. Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, and he was a key part of pushing these different chemotherapy uh, type procedures upon these AIDS victims back then. Uh, and, you know, see that this, what this does is it bypasses the immune system that's already weakened and attacked by this disease and further weakens it and, and you know, causes more issues for people. But anyway, we won't belabor that point for too long. Let's move on and see what else Mr. Mullins has to say here. There have been repeated claims that AIDS is actually a man-made virus. It seems to have been unknown prior to 1976, when mild traces of it were discovered in African blood banks. Available evidence indicates that it then began spreading throughout Africa, and subsequently to the United States during the mid-70s. A possible reference to this, or some other created virus, appears in the World Health Organization Bulletin, uh, version 47, page 251 in 1972. An attempt should be made to see if viruses can in fact exert selective effects on immune function. The possibility should be looked into that the immune response to the virus itself may be impaired if the infecting virus damages, more or less selectively, the cell responding to the virus. Carlton Gajewski, National Institute of Health Director at Fort Detrick noted, In the facility I have a building where more good and loyal communists, scientists from the USSR and mainland China work, with full pass keys to all the laboratories, than there are Americans. Even the Army's infectious disease unit is loaded with foreign workers, not always friendly nationals. 
This fuels speculation that such a virus could have been created by alien and unfriendly scientists working in the heart of our own defense laboratories, whether as a plan to decimate our population or as one more step toward the ultimate world domination. From 1976 to 1981, AIDS was almost exclusively publicly identified as a disease of homosexuals, thus the general population felt no alarm at problems confined to a relatively small group. The few non-homosexuals who came down with AIDS acquired it from public blood banks through homosexuals who had sold their blood. AIDS was then termed gay cancer by doctors who informed patients they had the disease. It was usually unmistakable because of large purplish blotches which disfigured the skin, proof of the presence of Kaposi's sarcoma. At this time, many doctors believed the disease originated in the, in the peculiar physical factors of homosexual activity, with considerable evidence pointing to the use of fatty lubricants in rectal intercourse. These lubricants introduced into the intestinal area in the un this unusual manner apparently provided a fertile breeding ground for the onslaught of the infection. Dr. Lawrence Burton, a noted cancer specialist, raised the question, what effect does repeated and sustained introduction of lubricants into the anal cavity have upon the immune system? It was noted that this caused immune depression in test animals. Burton's attorney, W.H. Moore, suggested that hydrogenated fats, either consumed orally or used anally, could cause AIDS. This again brings us back to the role which nutrition plays in any disease, such as the victims of atomic radiation in Japan. Those on traditional low-fat diet suffered substantially fewer fatalities than those on the modern high-fat diet. This also raises again the question of hydrogenated fats and their possible deleterious effect upon the human system, either heated, which produces dangerous chemical changes, or ingested cold. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Like I said, some of this information will be a little bit dated because this was written in 1988. Uh, so uh, keep that in mind as we go through this. But these were the things that were being talked about and uh, considered within the medical community regarding AIDS in the 1980s. So it's important to keep these things in mind and uh, compare to different things going on today. And as we get a little further through this, you'll begin to see and draw some connections and connect the dots. And I, I know many people uh, have said that it's been speculated that uh, this COVID-19 that allegedly is going around causing this uh, worldwide pandemic is somehow related to some genetically modified form of AIDS or, or some such thing. Okay, so keep that in mind. There's definite correlations here. They, they were definitely uh, letting the idea of AIDS and COVID-19 be tied together for some reason or another. And I think uh, there could be some important tells here, and that's why we're going through this. But uh, keep that in mind, though, that some of the information is a little bit dated. Uh, so, you know, but bear in mind, this these were things discussed in the 1980s in the medical establishment. Let's get back to the reading, though. <clears throat> the initial reaction of many homosexuals on being informed that they had AIDS was what has been termed by psychologists homosexual rage, a dementia in which the patient is possessed by a mad desire for revenge. 
The phenomenon of this type of AIDS dementia has been observed in some 60% of AIDS patients, bolstering some doctors' belief that AIDS is merely a new variant on the ancient syphilis infection. Syphilis is often is characterized by paresis, deterioration of the brain until schizophrenia takes over. Other physicians have related AIDS dementia to toxoplasmosis, a cat-borne parasite, which causes the same type of dementia which afflicts patients with AIDS. The problem with pursuing any of these leads is that not only is the medical monopoly waiting in the wings to reap more billions of dollars in profits from this new epidemic, but the civil libertarians and forestalling investigations of AIDS by defending the privacy of its victims. Like other groups, which either have offended society or have purposely cut themselves off from what is termed society, homosexuals have developed a fanatical group loyalty. Many homosexual activists see in AIDS one more representation of the fundamental differences which create an insurmountable barrier between themselves and other humans. As such, they are exploiting it and perhaps are reluctant to see any solution to AIDS. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Like I said, keep in mind, much of this information is dated, but there's some important correlations being drawn there. See, there, you know, the author is drawing correlations, and it's not just the author. This was some of the medical community back in the 1980s. Uh, they were drawing correlations with AIDS to things like syphilis and toxoplasmosis. Okay, uh, so that being the case, we also see some of these same effects being touted in COVID-19 today, too. Some of these same type things, like uh, they claim there's all these long-term effects that it has, and, you know, uh, there's there's been neurological effects reported and things like that. And they were talking about 60% of AIDS patients had this, this type of uh, dementia, okay, this AIDS dementia thing back there in the 1980s when they were studying this stuff. So keep these things in mind, okay? There's some important correlations being drawn here. Now, whether there's any factual evidence to support some of these things they're saying or not is up in the air for question, but there's definitely a reason why these correlations between COVID-19 and AIDS have been drawn, uh, you know, in the public attention by some researchers and things, or why it's been allowed to leak out, uh, so to say that there, there may be some sort of connection. See, uh, they don't allow anything in the, the mainstream media to come out like that without reason. And, you know, a lot of it is to maybe kind of make the idea sound like ridiculous that maybe COVID-19 and AIDS are somehow related. Uh, and, and that might be part of it, too. But anyway, let's get back to the reading. This group loyalty has manifested itself in a telling way. The determination of many homosexuals with AIDS to infect as many people as possible, not only through greatly extending their already voluminous sexual contacts, but also by infecting others through their bartered blood. And I'm going to pause once again there, folks. Remember, this is coming from the perspective of Eustace Mullins, okay? And like I said, he was opinionated in many ways, so he may seem, you know, a little bit harsh uh, in, in some of the ways he talks here, and that's why I, I gave that little disclaimer in the beginning that some people might find this offensive, but there is important information in here that needs to be garnered too. So uh, I would advise eat the meat and throw away the bones when it comes to that stuff. 
Um, if you don't agree with something that he says here or you don't like it, well, discard that bit and just hold on to the valuable information because that's the thing. We need to be able to find the value in a lot of this information that's out there, regardless of who it is that's that's telling their biased viewpoint of things. Uh, there's all, a lot of factual information in here that could be very important and telling. So keep that in mind. But let's continue on. In Los Angeles, a James Markowski, who was then in the final stages of AIDS, was arrested June 23, 1987, for selling his blood to the Los Angeles Plasma Production Associates. He admitted that he wanted to infect as many people as possible before he died. On January 7, 1987, a notorious homosexual activist, Robert Schwab, who was also dying of AIDS, made a public appeal to all his confreres that gay males should immediately give blood if they had been diagnosed as having AIDS. Whatever action is required to get national attention is valid, he declared. If that includes blood terrorism, so be it. It was noted that following Schwab's widely advertised public appeal, blood donations increased by a dramatic 300% in New York and San Francisco, the two queenly centers of American homosexuality. None other than Rock Hudson, when he was informed that he had AIDS, was overcome with homosexual rage. He immediately launched on a frenetic campaign to infect as many people as possible, concentrating on teenagers who had no idea of the dangers they were facing. In his insane determination to leave this world in a sexual goddardom ring, Hudson must have infected dozens, if not hundreds, of unsuspecting youths. Even today, lawsuits are still pending against his estate as a result of his orgy of fear and hate. While the Rock Hudsons were dying their slow and agonizing deaths, most members of the American public viewed them with a mixture of approbation and contempt. There was no fear, because as yet there was no indication of peril to the population at large. However, as early as September 16, 1983, at a health conference in Washington, D.C., the question was raised by Dr. John Grarholtz, Will AIDS become another bubonic plague? The conference supplied the finding that AIDS can be the harbinger of a series of holocaustal epidemics. Going to pause there, folks. Uh, you hear that? The conference supplied the finding that AIDS can be the harbinger of a series of holocaustal epidemics. <laughs> Let's get back to the reading now. On September 26, 1985, Dr. William Hazeltine of Harvard Medical School reported that an estimated 10 million Africans were now infected with the AIDS virus. However, government authorities here continued to assure the public that AIDS was limited to four groups, homosexuals, Haitians, intravenous drug users, and blacks. Since most American citizens would never come into direct contact with any of these groups, a feeded sub-underclass which existed in its own twilight world of filth and degeneracy, it seemed that the AIDS epidemic would never become a threat to the American middle class. And I'm going to pause there again, folks. Remember, this is from the perspective of Eustace Mullins, who, as I said, was very highly opinionated in very many things. And, uh, like I said, uh, if, if you don't find value in uh, some of what's being said here um, just discard those bits that there's not value in like his uh, obvious biases and prejudices here but uh, there is you know some greater factual information to be found in here that's why it's important that we read it and you don't have to agree with everything 
that's being said in a particular work like this. But uh, know that there are some raw facts and raw data that can be garnered from this that are important. Anyway, let's get back to the reading once again. The government agency, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, the heroes of the Great Swine Flu Massacre, now did their best to keep the American pub people in the dark as to a possible spread of AIDS. They issued periodic eucuses to the effect that AIDS could not be spread by insects. AIDS could not be contracted by kissing, although they admitted that the AIDS virus was present in saliva and other reassurances whose scientific validity seems to have been taken directly from the pages of Grimm's fairy tales. Even so, CDC estimated that by 1988, from one to one and a half million Americans would be infected with the AIDS virus. There were already 5,890 members of the U.S. Army who were infected with AIDS. Dr. David Axelrod, Commissioner of Health for the State of New York, solemnly warned, that all those who had the AIDS virus were doomed. Virtually all those infected are doomed. Dr. John Seal of Richmond, Virginia, presided at a conference June 11, 1987, in which he stated positively that AIDS is not a sexually transmitted disease. It is a contagious disease which is also transmitted in blood. He denounced the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Everett Koop, for deliberately spreading disinformation about the disease, claiming that joining Koop in this campaign of scientific dis disinformation were Sir Donald Ackeson, Chief Medical Officer of the United Kingdom, Dr. Hafton Mahler, Director General of the World Health Organization, Dr. Robert Gallo of the National Institute of Health, and Professor Viktor Zadanov director of the Ivanovsky Institute of Virology in Moscow. Dr. Seal was not the first to point the finger at Dr. Gallo, resident scientist of the National Institute of Health, who was famed as having discovered the humano-immunodeficiency virus, HIV, which he claimed was the cause of AIDS. After Gallo's discovery, the NIH, which doles out funds for research on AIDS, as well as many other categories, consistently denied funds to any scientist whose work failed to bear out Gallo's claim. Gonna pause there, folks. Do you see how this works? Do, do, do you understand if science won't get funding if it doesn't hold up the supported doctrine of the establishment, then... They're not going to produce any science that shows contrary to that uh, because, you know, then they don't have a livelihood. They don't get a paycheck. This is how this works. That's exactly what that's pointing out right there. Let's get back to the reading, though. <clears throat> President Reagan then appointed a special presidential commission on AIDS, which was intended to solve the problem. It tried to do so by meeting in a great secrecy sorry, meeting in great secrecy, and by meeting without a quorum, so that no notes could be taken of the proceedings. Admiral James D. Watkins was head of these meetings, which came in for much criticism merely because the American public wanted to know what was being accomplished. One of the researchers who was to come into conflict with Dr. Gallo over the HIV controversy is Dr. Peter Duesberg, professor of virology at the University of California at Berkeley. Duesberg is also a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He had been brought to Gallo's own laboratory to work under a fellowship grant. 
After studying HIV in the same laboratory where Gallo had claimed to have made his monumental findings, Dr. Duesberg concluded that the HIV virus did not meet the standard criteria required of a disease-causing agent. Gonna pause there, folks. Does any of this sound familiar? Same old playbook. Like I said, same old playbook. Let's get back to the reading, though. He published his findings in the medical journal Cancer Research in March 1987 and sat back to wait for Dr. Gallo to justify his conclusions. Both he and the editor of Cancer Research, Dr. Peter McGee, were amazed when Dr. Gallo made no reply, either then or in the ensuing months. Dr. Gallo also refused to return telephone calls seeking to elicit some reaction to Duisberg's findings. Apparently, it was one of those famous factor fiction researches in which Dr. Gallo had claimed to pinpoint the HIV virus as the sole cause of AIDS. This sort of thing occurs more often than anyone realizes in the academic and scientific world, which is riddled with petty jealousies, calculated deceit, and denial of funds to anyone who might expose their fake research. As we mentioned earlier, most scientists, when asked for their research notes, usually respond that they have been accidentally burned. Whether anyone has ever seen any of Dr. Gallo's work isolating the HIV virus is not known. However, he has since moved to cut off any further studies of the HIV virus. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. Do you see how this stuff works? Okay. And they call this science. Okay. So one guy comes out, claims he found this thing, and that this is the cause of this new epidemic that's out there. And, uh, you know, he holds the keys to the kingdom, and he's the one that controls... Uh, you know, if, if people get funding for their research. So if, if his research isn't backed up by this, well, you know, you know then uh, you don't get your paycheck, see? <laughs> you don't get published. You get blackballed. Do you understand how this works? Don't, don't we see something similar to this going on today? Uh, very much so. Any, any research or anybody that comes out and talks out against the COVID narrative or says something that does not... Uh, add up to what uh, Fauci says is the new and best science, uh, you don't hear from them too much anymore, do you? They get kind of excommunicated from the quote-unquote scientific community. So uh, this is the kind of thing that happens, and it's been going on a long time. Same old playbook, folks. You control the funding for the research, and you control the outcome of the research. Plain and simple. Okay, so if you have some kind of vested interest in something being a certain way, anybody that presents it in another way, their research never gets published, does it? So let, let's get back to the reading here, though. I don't want to belabor that point too long. I think you get the idea. Dr. Harvey Bailey, research editor of the medical journal Biotechnology, had organized a White House workshop on the subject, How Does HIV Cause AIDS? It was to be co-hosted by Jim Warner, a senior analyst for domestic policy at the White House. It was expected that Dr. Gallo would attend this conference and present some substantiation of his claims. Warner had already become very skeptical of Gallo after reviewing Dr. Duisberg's findings. But Gallo never appeared. Instead, the White House conference, which was scheduled for January 19, 1988, was abruptly canceled without explanation. 
Hundreds of millions of dollars continue to be awarded each year to pursue Gallo's questionable claim that the HIV virus causes AIDS. However, no funds are awarded to those who wish to challenge his claims. Dr. Duisberg has had some interesting experiences since he unwittingly challenged one of the nation's leading bureaucratic scientists. The Presidential Committee on the HIV Virus Epidemic invited him to a special meeting in New York, which was covered by the Wall Street Journal scientific writer Katie Leishman. A staff member of this meeting admitted that Duisberg was invited to appear to discredit him. This goal was thwarted when none of the members of the Presidential Commission could answer any of Dr. Duisberg's findings. They consoled themselves by sharply reprimanding him for having challenged Gallo's work. Dr. William Walsh, who is president of Project Hope and perennial standard bearer of establishment values, strongly admonished Duisberg. Don't confuse the public. Don't confuse the poor people suffering from the, this disease. Duisberg was himself confused by this approach, as he had never sought to confuse anyone. He had merely pursued a scientific approach which brought into disrepute the leading government scientist. If this upset a presidential commission, whose sole function seemed to be to protect Dr. Gallo, this could hardly be Dr. Duisberg's fault. As we commented, the entire imbroglio typifies what passes for serious scientific work in America. And I'm going to pause there. And that continues to this day, folks. This was not just something that happened in the 1980s. This continues today. See, if the leading scientific authority is challenged, well, you get berated and put down by people in positions of power, and you lose your funding, and you lose your status, and they try to discredit you and make you look foolish or dumb or useless, or they just dis take away your licensure or anything else that you have. See, that goes on to this day, and these many of these things reflect things going on today. Same old playbook. Let's get back to the reading, though. Miss Leishman characterized the episode as that of instant orthodoxy which resists review. Meanwhile, due to the lack of real scientific verification of any single cause, a number of theories about the origin of AIDS have sprung up. These range from the previously mentioned suggestion that it is a new variation on the syphilis spirochete to a variation of hepatitis virus which has been endemic for some years to its kinship with the Epstein-Barr virus, a member of the herpes veridae. This is probably the most widely disseminated human virus today, affecting some 95% of the world's population. It is usually transmitted through saliva. Young people come down with it as infectious mononucleosis. Its consequences include hepatitis and spelnomegaly, with complications of Ray's syndrome, Guillain-Barre syndrome, Bell's palsy, and chronic fever and fatigue. Its effects are often mistaken by physicians for multiple sclerosis, Hodgkin's disease, leukemia, and lupus. Dr. Stephen Kaiser of New York is one of those who identify AIDS as the latest manifestation of syphilis, a logical determination in view of the fact that it occurs frequently among very promiscuous homosexuals and prostitutes. During the first quarter of 1987, recorded cases of syphilis jumped by 23%, the largest increase in a decade. Dr. Peter Duisberg is so positive that there is another agent for AIDS that he has offered to be publicly injected with the AIDS virus. Chuck Ortleb voices another widely held concept 
that AIDS is but one variation of the widely encountered chronic fatigue syndrome, the Epstein-Barr syndrome, which is now worldwide. Other researchers are certain that AIDS is merely one more consequence of the Great Swine Flu Massacre when the population was injected with the swine flu vaccine. Correlations between AIDS and the real swine flu, that is, a version of this disease which had been observed among swine, have now been established. I'm going to pause there, folks. He's making the correlation back to the swine flu epidemic of 1976 when they came out with these vaccinations and uh, they wound up pulling the vaccinations off the market after 25 people dropped dead. Okay, uh, so that being the case, he's correlating AIDS back to that swine flu epidemic. Do you see how all these things all tie together all the time? Um, I don't know how else to draw the lines for you. It all interrelates, all of it, in one way, shape, or form. Okay, uh, but let's get back to the reading here. Other researchers have blamed a more dramatic or accidental variation of a hepatitis serum, which was widely distributed a few years ago. However, none of these theories can compare in narrative value with the green monkey theory. According to this theory, which had long been a favorite explanation advanced by the government propaganda group, the Center for Disease Control, for years a tribe of little green monkeys had roamed in Central Africa. Showing little fear of humans, they have often strayed into native villages. These green monkeys carry in their bloodstream a type of the AIDS virus, to which they are seemingly immune. However, the little green monkeys have either bitten native women or had intercourse with them, depending on which story you wish to believe. The native women's systems then activated the AIDS virus and later infected their husbands, who then went to Haiti, where they were paid to perform as male prostitutes by members of the American homosexual population, who frequently visited Haiti for amusement. These homosexuals then returned to New York, infecting the New York community and commuting to San Francisco, where they spread the disease on the West Coast. This scenario is claimed to have taken place within a few weeks, from green monkey to homosexuals dying with AIDS in San Francisco. However, most researchers believe the disease took quite a few years to reach its present endemic stage. A response to the AIDS epidemic was made difficult by the fact that it was confined to the homosexuals, poor blacks, and intravenous drug users who were known by the slogan, Nothing Degenerate is Alien to Me. The disease became prevalent at the same time that the homosexual movement was emerging as a powerful political force. Allying themselves with blacks, militant homosexuals for all practical purposes, took over the Democratic Party, to the dismay of active heterosexuals like Senator Teddy Kennedy. The traditional leaders of the Democratic Party now began to fear publicity about AIDS as originating from the Republican Party, which could pose as the party of sexual normality. There is little doubt that the conquest of the Democratic Party by the wackos, wresting it away from its long-standing mafia control, was a boon to the Republicans. The result was that the Democrats fought desperately to keep AIDS in the closet, battling any proposals for AIDS testing or other government measures to control its spread. In San Francisco, a plan to close the bathhouses, the nation's most famous homosexual bordellos, had originated with some of the more frightened homosexuals who had already seen their lovers wither away and die from the disease. Their suggestion was met with a chorus of outrage from the hardcore homos who were loyally supported by San Francisco's political leaders. 
It had long been established that the homosexual vote now provided the crucial swing vote needed for victory in San Francisco, and they were not about to give up their political power. On the national level, government efforts to deal with AIDS have been limited to pathetic and laughable programs to hand out free condoms and free drug needles to the suicidal fringe among the degenerates. In fact, by these tactics, government agencies themselves became official sponsors of homosexual degeneracy and use of narcotics, a strange development for the upholders of the statutes. Reflecting the government's new and more enlightened approach, Bird's Florist in the, national, in the nation's capital celebrated Valentine's Day 1988 by offering a Valentine special consisting of a dozen American beauty roses and a dozen condoms. The package, which was called the Safe Sex Bouquet, was received with enthusiasm by the government bureaucracy. Throughout this epidemic, <clears throat> the government has done virtually nothing while AIDS continues to spread. The Center for Disease Control, in Jimmy Carter's backyard, had continued to be dominated by old-blind Democratic politicians. Any cooperation with the fascist regime of Ronald Reagan was refused. From the outset of the AIDS epidemic, the Center for Disease Control has fought a desperate rearguard action to conceal or play down the epidemic. In the summer of 1985, CDC authorities flatly refused to consider head lice or pubic lice as possible transmitters of the AIDS virus. CDC staff members rejected the idea with horror, lisping that the very notion was impracticable and frightening. In fact, it is well known that many viruses are carried by insects, especially arboviruses, arthropod-borne viruses. Some 500 of these arboviruses have now been identified. Some researchers are certain that the bedbug is one of the principal carriers of the AIDS virus, which is spreading so rapidly throughout Africa. The bedbug is found in almost every African hut. Scientists now believe that mosquitoes, the CC fly, the lion ant, and black beetles may also be transmitting the AIDS virus in Africa. This offers a rational explanation for the rapid spread of AIDS in many different African countries. None of these insects can be found in all African countries, but one or more are present in large numbers in every region of Africa. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Once again, some of this information is dated. <coughs> And some of it, um, you know, is not necessarily something that might be verifiable in the modern day uh, because it seems that much attention has been drawn away from the AIDS epidemic in recent years. And uh, it's one of those things where it would require a much deeper dive into studying this kind of thing to know the ins and outs of all this stuff that uh, Mr. Mullins was, was expressing here in this writing. So... Uh, you know, keep that stuff in mind. Like I said, some of the information may be a little dated, and some of it is very heavily skewed uh, with Mr. Mullen's opinions. Uh, so that being the case, like I said, just eat the meat, throw away the bones, take what you find of value from this, because there's a lot of interesting data in here that is factual, and uh, leave what you don't agree with behind. But it doesn't, uh, you know, discredit the uh, importance of reading this. Back to the reading, though. In 1900, Dr. Walter Reed proved that the Aedes aegypti mosquito was the vector for yellow fever. It is now known that some monkeys do carry an AIDS-type virus. 
But, as Dr. Duisberg discovered, the HIV virus to which Dr. Gallo of NIH attributes sole responsibility for AIDS infection is only present in about half of all AIDS cases, a factor which Dr. Gallo forbears to explain. Gonna pause there, folks. That's an interesting uh, turn of events, isn't it? The HIV virus is only present in about half of all AIDS cases. Okay? Doesn't that sound familiar? And I do believe that it was uh, this uh, same PCR-type testing they were using to detect HIV back in the 1980s, which the inventor of the PCR test uh, really uh, spoke out against this using this, this method, this PCR method for testing people for the HIV. And he's spoken out against Fauci and against uh, the whole uh, notion of HIV. So... Uh, that's that's an interesting correlation right there that we could uh, equate to the, the modern events of today. But anyway, let's get back to the reading, though. The question is, what is the infecting agent in the other half of the AIDS cases? Or as Dr. Duisberg states, the HIV virus is not the infecting agent in any of them. If this is the case, then the massive government testing programs for the presence of the HIV virus are a multi-million dollar hue and cry after false trails. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. Sound familiar? PCR testing to find this virus that isn't even probably the causal factor of a thing. Hmm, making millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, for this <laughs> medical community. Uh, detecting this stuff, all this testing. Test, test, test. What do we know about testing going on today? Well, there's all these new tests now to detect this uh, this COVID-19 virus, see, and all these variants and stuff of it. Uh, well, they don't actually have a test for variants. They, they just do that through genetic sequencing, they say. Uh, but uh, that, that's neither here nor there. But that's the thing testing see they, they use these same protocols it's the same playbook over and over again uh, they're just pulling it on a grander scale this time uh, i think the the aids run in the 1980s was a test run for this kind of uh methodology that they're they're using today in my honest opinion there but anyway let's get back to the reading Although the Center for Disease Control has continued to insist that poverty, environment, and insects all have absolutely nothing to do with AIDS transmission, an advertisement appeared in May 1987 in Science Magazine seeking a research entomologist who would study the possible role of biting anthropods in transmitting human immunodeficiency virus. Apply to the Center for Disease Control. The perils of offending preconceived theories about AIDS continued dog researchers. When the Institute of Tropical Medicine presented the results of research it had concluded there, and which indicated there was an arboviral connection to AIDS, the University of Michigan, under considerable pressure from the Center for Disease Control, promptly cut off all of their funding. At Oxford, on August 25, 1986, Professor Jean-Claude Surman of Paris' Pasteur Institute reported that AIDS had been found in African insects. The virus had been isolated in mosquitoes, cockroaches, ants, and sissy flies. Gonna pause there. 
You hear that? This virus was isolated in mosquitoes, cockroaches, ants, and CC flies. I'm assuming that they didn't test pawpaw fruits or cans of Coke or anything back then, like they did in this this run of things and found this stuff. But uh, anyway, I digress on that. We could make the connections all day long. But let's get back to the reading and see what else Mr. Mullins has to say here. This was a direct contradiction to the claims of the CDC that the AIDS virus could not be carried by mosquitoes or any other insects. California physician Bruce Halstead, MD, states that modern medicine has no cure for AIDS, cancer, or radiation sickness. He also points out that his research establishes that the AIDS virus is capable of one trillion mutations. Gonna pause there, folks. The AIDS virus is capable of one trillion mutations. I wonder how many mutations COVID-19 possibly has. Hmm? How many trillions of vaccines could they make for this thing? Anyway, back to the reading. Meanwhile, AIDS patients who are being treated by oncologists, cancer specialists, are reported to be dying at a much greater rate than AIDS patients who are being treated by holistic methods. Many of them are surprising medical statisticians by surviving longer than the two-year time span allotted after the diagnosis of the disease. One 40-year-old patient in San Francisco, Dan Turner, is now the longest surviving victim of AIDS. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Remember, this was written in 1988. Okay. He says he was infected during a trip to New York in June 1981, and on February 12, 1982, he was informed by a physician that he had gay cancer. After developing the unmistakable symptoms of Kaposi's sarcoma, he had observed a regimen of vitamin C, natural foods, meditation, acupuncture, and weightlifting. Lawrence Badgley, MD, in his groundbreaking work, Healing AIDS Naturally, offers a number of treatments, a typical one having shown good results with a vegetarian diet of vegetables, vitamins, wheatgrass, juice, and herbs, which is accompanied by eight or nine cloves of raw garlic each day. While the government fiddles, the American public continues to burn at the thought of being infected with AIDS, a fatal disease. Referees at boxing matches and other blood sport now wear medical gloves to avoid being infected by splattering blood from the contestants. Court officials don protective clothing such as gloves and surgical masks when forced to appear in court with diseased AIDS victims. These accoutrements arouse rage and horror from civil libertarians who claim these protective techniques create a harmful atmosphere for the AIDS patient. Since he is probably already dying, the argument would seem to be moot. And I'm going to pause there for just a second, folks. You see, uh, the same ideas once again, masks and gloves once again. It's the same playbook over and over and over. Anyway, let's get back to the reading. The established fact that from its outset, the AIDS epidemics was confined to the well-identified groups of homosexuals, Haitians, intravenous drug users, and blacks has also created a furor at the American Civil Liberties Union, it being a precept of egalitarian society that a disease should not be so bigoted in choosing its victims. In New York State prisons from 1984 to 1986, the toll of AIDS victims was 45% Hispanic, 43% black, with 97% of them being intravenous drug users. And that's quoted from New York Times, February 7th, 1988. All right. Anyway, 
that's about it for this chapter here, folks. But we could see all these different correlations being made here between AIDS, COVID-19, all these same things being used, all these same different methodologies being used uh, with, within these uh, two separate uh, pandemics or epidemics, however you want to view them. Uh, we, we could kind of see some of these same ideas rolled out in both of these different uh, different epidemic stages or uh, these different uh, plans being used by the medical system to treat these these diseases and it's all the same players involved in many cases because as you know uh, Dr. Fauci was directly involved in much of the work that went on with AIDS okay and he used many of the same tools uh, within the confines of this AIDS epidemic as he did through here with the COVID-19 pandemic all right he used different things like PCR testing uh, he used questionable treatment methods for these things and uh, he's had a very poor track record uh, within you know the AIDS research side of things with everything and I think uh, you know, Eustace Mullins here was pointing out some important ideas early on in this chapter when he was talking about uh, the the frequency correlation there between with how these cells work and the, the different biophotonic ideas that go along with that. Uh, I think these are important things to explore in uh, pursuit of figuring out how disease and how health uh, really truly work. And I really do believe that a portion of the... Uh, research money that was uh, earmarked for AIDS research probably went into some similar programs like that, especially any defense funding that may have been going into some of these things. Uh, so that being the case, there's important avenues of research that still need to be sought out there over these things, but I thought it was important that we could point out tonight the fact that uh, COVID-19, AIDS, all of these things, all these medical psyops, uh, whether there's a real disease or a real uh, pathogen involved with any of them or uh, whatever the case may be, whatever your belief is on this, they've all been orchestrated into a type of a medical psyop, okay? Uh, so that being the case, they, they've used questionable methods to report numbers and to uh, actually identify cases, as it were, and uh, the treatments are kind of sketchy at best uh, for both of them. And right now, it's all about the push for vaccination. So, uh, you know, we could also look at the, the whole part of this where uh, this Dr. Gallo back in the 1980s is the one who claims to have isolated this HIV virus and determined that it was the sole cause of AIDS when the data never really matched up to show that. And uh, all of his research got brushed under the rug, but they still uh, managed to quote him on all of this stuff and use it as a foundation for their treatment options and things of that nature. Don't we see a similar pattern going on today, folks? This is a, much of this uh, type of, of line of thinking all has to do with pattern recognition. If you see the same things, the same tools, the same playbooks, and the same players involved in one of these things... Uh, 40 years ago, and the thing going on today, uh, what does that tell you? It tells me that uh, probably the earlier one was a model for the current one. 
Uh, so that being the case, they've used these ideas to push forward ideas, steer public consciousness, and create an illusion of what they want the public to see and to perceive. And uh, it seems to me that uh, regardless of your stance on whether any of these diseases are actual pathogens or, or really cause illness or not, or if they're misdescriptions of something else, or, or whatever your opinion is on it, whatever your viewpoint is, uh, it could be said that we're not being given the whole truth here. And that uh, much of the information that is put out is put out by the people providing the funding. So whatever their opinion is of it is what you're going to get. And if you have a contrary opinion of it and you're a, a researcher or a laboratory clinician or something who finds uh, things that contradict the mainstream narrative, well, guess what? Your funding is getting cut. Uh, you're going to be discredited in a very public forum, and uh, you're going to get some backlash for that. And they make that abundantly clear, and that goes on through all of these different uh, academic institutions and, and different government agencies and things of that nature. All academia, that works the same way. All the, this col these colleges, these universities, they get their funding from these higher sources. So if uh, these higher sources, the sources of the funding, want to show one certain uh, narrative, that's what they'll fund. And if they, they find somebody that's, uh, you know, putting out contradictory information to what they want, they could cut their funding. So you don't get your paycheck. You don't get your tenure if you're a university professor. They, they use all of these things to leverage this information and to leverage the data uh, and only publish and put out the data that supports the, uh, the narrative that whoever's controlling the funding wants. That's how this works, and we see that playbook in place even back then in the 1980s, and it's the same old story, same old song and dance, my friend. Uh, so... Just to make it abundantly clear, we see how all of this ties together in many different ways. And like I said, it's same playbook, okay? Same players, same tools. I don't know what else to say. I mean, that that's you could look back at this uh, example of the AIDS epidemic and, and uh, all the things that have come out of that and see exactly what's going on today and understand the correlation between the two and let's be honest what uh what new advances have come from aids research well we're not really sure are we because it's kind of very uh confusing and nebulous as to where the money actually went what kind of research and funding it went into and the, the things that we do know about it are questionable at best and we know that a a large portion of uh People being treated for this uh, epidemic in the 1980s and, and moving forward uh, were treated with different chemotherapies and stuff that proved to be more harmful uh, than they were good for. So that being the case, and the fingerprints of one Dr. Anthony Fauci were all over that as well. And here he is. He's the guy, like, you know, making all the claims today and, and being the public face of this thing right now. So uh, same players, same playbooks, same tools. All of it. Same strategies. Um, the only difference today is the media is more heavily uh, holding up the scenario than it was back in the 1980s. Or at least it's, it's a ramped up version of the same thing. The propaganda is off the charts compared to what it was in the 1980s. 
uh, because there was still some credibility left in media in the 1980s. Not much, but a little bit. And now that that credibility's gone, it's it's pure propaganda, folks. Anyway, that's about all I have to say here tonight about this whole thing. I, I hope that this uh, kind of got you thinking about some of these things and some of these ideas and recognizing what it is that's going on today, uh, just based upon the historical uh, background of, of some of these different ideas. Uh, this is a medical psyop. Make no doubt about that. We are in the middle of a medical psyop. And uh, in the 1980s, the AIDS epidemic was a type of medical psyop uh, that was put out against the public as well. And we could see the echoes of that today. Anyway, thanks for hanging out with me tonight, folks, and have a good night. We'll catch you next time. Come with me.